Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us, virtual audience, and thank you for our live audience for coming this evening. We are so pleased to see you. I hope everybody had a happy Thanksgiving. Did you? Good. So, Jeffrey had a, well, an, anyway, happy time last night, um, having dinner, turkey, and puppies. Master Chef and her husband. Yes, thank that you we so did. much. Right. I asked Jeffrey earlier today if other bookstores entertain authors when they're on tour, and he said no. Yeah. But that's part of our thing here is that, you know, we take very good care of authors. And, um, right. So, and so they keep coming back, right? Mm -hmm. Even Jeffrey even came one time when he didn't even have a book to celebrate it my birthday, birthday with him, exactly. which is, that's right. <laughs> so we have a very long, gosh, 30 years, I think, together. Years, exactly. It's yes. been a long time. And some of you have been coming. I recognize faces <laughs> for about that long. It's been a long time. So as when you know, infants, Jeff, you Jeffrey writes different characters. I mean, Lincoln Rhyme is, is, is long-term, but we've had um, other characters, and currently... The book he's here to talk about this evening features Coulter Shaw in, I think, is it his fourth or his fifth? This is the fourth. Okay, in his fourth. And Coulter Shaw is an interesting guy because he's an asset retriever. So basically, he's kind of on a treasure hunt mm -hmm. most of the time. But somehow, it always leads him into behaving more or less like a private eye. Right, which yep. is kind of the idea, right? So um, I think that Jeff's plan is to read for you a little bit, and then he has something else he wants to do, and then eventually we'll talk and ask questions the whole bit. Sure. So Sounds over good. to you, kiddo. All right, thank you. And if you're curious, I um, uh, print out, it's the same thing that's in here. This happens to be the English edition, uh, British edition of the book, and... Um, this wow, is, that's a really different cover. It's got a butterfly on it. I don't know what to say. <laughs> it does so. have a butterfly on it. Look at that. Mm -hmm. You know that, I mean, I know I'm digressing, but we always do. But isn't it interesting how different countries decide there are different ways to package books? Sometimes they change the titles. Most of the time they change the cover art country to country. And very often the hardcover book has a different cover than the paperback book because they decide that there's going to be a different, you know, different audience for the paperback. So although, I, heaven forbid that I should suggest they're just trying to trick you <laughs> into buying a book you already own by changing the cover. And the problem is what? <laughs> okay, right. So there we go. The two pale-complected men suddenly turned the corner from behind the old barn and leveled their handguns toward Coulter Shaw, Allison Parker, and her 16-year-old daughter, Hannah. One of the men was in a suit, the other a tan jacket. Shaw motioned the mother and the girl to remain still. To Shaw, suit said, I know you are of a certain sort. That is clearly on the table and that you have a weapon somewhere. He aimed the muzzle at Hannah's neck. The girl gasped and Parker started forward. She stopped when Suit pushed the weapon closer. Coulter Shaw said calm, calmly, not necessary, not necessary. Just do me a favor, move your aim aside, would you? The men eyed each other for a moment and then Salt indeed eased the gun away. He nodded to Tan Jacket, who stepped forward. Pulling on blue gloves, he frisked Shaw expertly and relieved him of the Glock, the extra magazines, the Colt, and his phone. He then stepped to Parker, smiling to do the same thing. 
and his hand started down her spine. Fury on her face, she elbowed his arm back. Eyes on his partner, Suit said impatiently, no, no time for that now. Come on, come on, let's just move along here, can we? Tanjaka gave a frustrated grimace and took the woman's phone and Hannah's from her pockets. She muttered, my daughter doesn't have anything. Do not touch her. Tan, uh, Suit said to Tanjacket, all right, we'll respect that. The man offered another grimace of exasperation. The camper, Suit told him, and the man strode to the uh, grass, climbed the stairs into Shaw's Winnebago. Hannah was now staring at Suit. While her mother was livid, the girl was not. Her face was a mask of calm. She'd be thinking, never fight from emotion when you fight. Words that Coulter Shaw, the repository of never rules, had just recited to her. Shaw would have to watch her. This was not the time for bold moves, and bold moves were exactly what she had in mind. Parker muttered, and just how much is my husband paying you to kill me? Just hush, just hush, better for everybody. She continued, he's poor. Whatever he told you, he's lying. I have money, I have a lot of money. Listen to me, I'll pay you more. That hush thing, did you not hear it? When he turned away, Hannah whispered, Mr. Shaw, Mr. Shaw. Her eyes were swiveling slowly from him to suit. The muzzle of the gun that the man held had drooped as he glanced toward the Winnebago. Her eyebrows lifted, her eyes were expectant. He said, no. Tan jacket emerged. He was carrying Shaw's laptop and a handful of burner phones, several boxes of ammunition. Now, Suit said, you all in the camper. Hannah shot a look toward Shaw and she tensed to be ready to leap forward. He raised his hand and said, we'll do what they say. Maul, the man in the suit, announced, I do not like the looks of that man. He's worse than I thought. Worse? Dangerous is what I mean. I did not like his eyeballiness. That was not comforting. Desmond, the man in the tan jacket, grunted, and Maul guessed this meant he agreed. As he debated what to do next, Maul happened to be looking over the lake. Wonder what they catch there? Outdoorsman though he was, Maul didn't fish. Hooking something was not as much fun as shooting it. Bass, Desmond said. You know that from looking at the water? Desmond said, no, 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 but ask anybody what you catch in this lake or that lake, just say bass, who's to know the difference? You know that girl? That girl, she's a downright hostile woman, and she thinks more of herself than she is. Maul's eyes went to the camper. Dangerous, he repeated, dangerous. That dirty, hairy gun of his, he shoots tight groups, I do not doubt. He might be in there right now, making a gun out of a pipe and a shotgun shell hid somewhere. I don't disagree. You know, I'm not in this to get blasted like a wild boar. Do you know what I'm thinking? Hmm? Maul looked to the fire pit. His partner's eyes grew rounder. They grew hungrier. They grew happier. Maul said, do it. Desmond lugged the gas can to the Winnebago and poured the contents on the ground under the engine compartment. The two had burned vehicles before and learned that flames could not breach the gas tank, but would quickly melt the fuel lines under the motor and the gasoline would gush out, spurring the fire on. Even diesel would go up if the temperature was high enough. When he finished, though, he paused and turned to Maul. Might be more, you know, humane to shoot him. We could leave the door open. Get them when they run out. One by one, we could get them. Maul shook his head. No, 
they stay nice and tight inside. You know how it works, a place small as that, the fumes will knock them out before the fire gets them. Be like going to sleep, they won't feel a thing. Desmond shrugged, picked up a piece of burning kindling from the fire pit, tossed it upon the fuel. With a muted hush, a bed of blue and orange flame exploded and rolled underneath the camper. Desmond danced back and Maul smiled at the sight of his partner's weird valet. The men then climbed to the porch and sat down in rocking chairs, like they were buddies sipping whiskey and telling tall tales after a day in the field, taking their quota of Bob White or pheasant. They watched the relentless progress of the flames, the torrent of the black smoke. It was only a moment later when the screams began. Desmond looked from the camper to his partner, raised an eyebrow and muttered, fumes my ass. Well, I'd tell you more what happens, but um, of course, I'm a suspense writer, so I have to leave you in suspense as to whether Coltershaw, Allison, Parker, and Hannah managed to escape from the, uh, the deadly uh, camper. Um, I am working on the fifth Coltershaw book, so we know at least one of them survives. <laughs> and also that incident happened halfway through the, the book, so uh, you, uh, uh, I didn't want to give too much away, but you'll see you've got some excitement ahead of you. Now, if I may, I just would like to answer a couple of questions that I have received uh, prior to this, and uh, what I do is I take questions from the audience, which I certainly will, but I thought it might be helpful to uh, kind of preempt some of those, and please ask whatever you want, but uh, these are questions that I'm often asked, and I thought I would uh, share them with you now, and I hope you find them illuminating, whether you're a writer, and I know there's some very talented writers here, uh, or you aspire to write, um, you might find these comments um, interesting. And I know you love books. You're here to, not watching what's going on in Qatar or however you pronounce it. That's the, that's the round ball you kick, right? Okay, not the oblong one you, you throw. And I think there are no sticks involved, correct? You can tell, I, I, I was, well, we'll get to sports and myself in just a moment. Uh, a question I often get is, why do I write? Why do I write? I write because I was a nerd. But I was a nerd when the word meant something. You know, nowadays, um, uh, when you're a nerd, you're a billionaire who's developed an app about dancing cats <laughs> or a social media platform that you're relentlessly destroying for no reason anybody can figure out. Didn't mean to bring up Musk, but I guess I did. <clears throat> I was a real nerd. I was pudgy, clumsy, socially inept. I had no talent for sports whatsoever. Um, I was a, a leave it to beaver nerd. I said that once in an event. And this young, young girl came up to me afterwards and she said, she was angry. She said, Mr. Beaver, Justin Bieber is not a nerd. <laughs> and so I, I had to explain to her, well, I said, ask your parents, really ask your grandparents about it. Um, you know, I was ignored by cheerleaders and pom-pom girls and the, um, you've all seen the Queen's Gambit, I imagine. Well, on the sports teams in gym class, uh, the, the coaches of opposing teams would plot like chess grand, grandmasters to get me on the other guy's team. They absolutely did not want me on the, uh, on the softball or football team. And there was some justification for this because I was dreadful. I, I, I was terrible. Um, I would stand in right field, which apparently I learned is the part of the uh, baseball pitch where you can do the least damage, that, that you get fewer balls come to you there. And um, I would, um, I, but I wouldn't pay attention to the game. I'd be looking at the clouds and say, oh, you know, that looks like a dragon. I, maybe I'll write a story about that. And I'd, uh, I'd compose poems. I, I love poetry. I'd compose poems that went something like this. The score is tied, three boys on base. 
I see the batter's happy face as he grips the bat and looks my way. All I can do is hope and pray that he'll display an ounce of pity and won't hit that ball to me. But we all know how it goes. He whacks that ball and it breaks my nose. Um, so um, disaster with cheerleaders and pom-pom girls, disaster on the sports field. But you know, none of that mattered. Not a bit of it mattered. And do you know why? I had something else and something better than sports and even better than cheerleaders and pom-pom girls. I had the Glen Ellen, Illinois Public Library where I would spend my afternoons and weekends and um, I developed a fascination and uh, devoted love of books. Books I learned could take us away from our daily cares, like being ignored by cheerleaders and pom-pom girls. Have I mentioned that like a number of times? Um, they would teach us about uh, places and people we had no concept of knowing about, pre-internet, pre-Wikipedia, of course. And books did something else. Were you ever a new kid on the schoolyard, um, mortified, of course, very shy, or maybe uh, it was your school and you saw uh, the new addition to the class and uh, he or she was, was mortified and uh, kids are you know, dreadfully shy. They wouldn't approach each other until, until they noticed that you were carrying a copy of The Hobbit or Little House on the Prairie. And then you could walk up to that boy or girl and say, Hey, hey, did you get to the pot of gold in the Hobbit? Did you get to the, the sorcerers? Uh, or did you see what Pa did in the Laura Ingalls Wilder book? And their face lit up and you made eye contact and the, the shyness was gone. And even though you didn't know that person from Adam or from Eve, yes, you did. And books brought you together. And I knew right then I wanted to write books. I wanted to be a part of that world. Now, I, I can't get away without letting you um, hear one thing I absolutely feel. Um, and this has to do, a, a question I often get, do I plan my books ahead of time? And the answer to that is yes, and yes. And there's another answer, yes. Um, there's a, a great, uh, a great co uh, quote from Joyce Carol Oates. The first sentence of your book or story cannot be written until you know what the last sentence is. I'm talking about outlining. Uh, the world of writers is divided into two camps. The plotters, the outliners, and the pantsers, as in seat of the pants. People who just sit down with a, a blank uh, piece of paper uh, and a quill or uh, whatever, a pen, big pen, and start, or a blank screen, and start out and see where the book is going to go. Um, but I'm, I'm not that kind of person. I am an outliner. I outline more than any other person I have ever met, any other writer on the face of the earth. Hunting time uh, took me eight months to outline. The outline was about 140 pages by the time I finished it. And to be honest with you, it's, it was 140 pages, but very large write margin because after it was done, I would write notes in, in the margin. It had, um, because I write twists and turns and surprises, the outline had every clue in the book. I knew where that was going to be positioned. I knew um, who every character was. I wrote a little bio of them. I knew when they entered the story and when they left the story, either vertically or horizontally, because not everybody survives the end of my, uh, end of my, uh, my books. Um, that is excessive. You don't need to do that much. I would recommend not doing it because some people find it um, actually counterproductive but you need to have a roadmap. You need to know where you're going. 
And now I'm going to sell you on why outlines are important. I'm an uh, evangelical outliner. Uh, there, there are several, several reasons. Uh, first of all, thrillers, uh, well, frankly, all books are about structure as well as fine prose. In fact, I would rather read a book with, you know, rather pedestrian prose, but great structure um, than some, you know, literary novel that has these, these pyrotechnic passages, beautiful figures of speech and descriptions, and you read them and you think, wow, that's, oh, it's breathtaking. I have no idea what it means, but it's breathtaking. Uh, but give me a good story, give me a good plot, give me a good symphony. Uh, Ludwig von Beethoven, uh, one of my idols, both musically and as a novelist. Why? Because he knew how to structure his symphonies. There was the, um, uh, you know, he'd introduce a theme, and I'm not going to sing because I respect you all too much or do any vocal stuff, but um, uh, he would introduce a theme, and then uh, he would, we'd move into uh, maybe uh, an adagio, a slow movement, and then after that, vivace, and then another adagio, but uh, you know, a slightly shorter adagio, because now we're moving forward. The, the, the symphony is being propelled forward. A big crescendo, and then at the end, a coda, kind of a soft reconciliation of the whole, uh, whole work, what we would call an epilogue, or, or, the, or the last chapter. Uh, to outline, you get to see that structure ahead of time. My first books, I did not outline. And, but I knew structure was important, but after I finished the first draft, I would look at, look at them and say, you know what, no, this is wrong. I need to move chapter seven to position three, change the characters, introduce characters in chapter 13 that will have to come back in chapter 37. It was just a lot of work. So I learned to outline it first. Now, another reason to outline. Have you ever read a book that should not have been written? You don't have to raise your hands, but yes. And you want to know how that happens? <clears throat> Um, let's say you're an author and you have a brilliant idea for a set piece, a beginning, the prologue of the first chapter, and a set piece is an action scene. Now, it doesn't have to be uh, gunplay and car chases like a la Deadpool, if you've ever seen that opening scene, which is a great set piece. Um, it could be an emotional set piece. A couple breaks up, a couple discovers their child is ill, but it's just, it just grips you by the gut, the very beginning, and you, you say, oh, I'm so inspired. You sit down and you write. Bang, 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 out comes that chapter, it's brilliant. And the steam is up, you keep going. Chapter two, oh, you're, you're, you're just racing along. Chapter three, a little bit slower, not quite sure what's gonna happen, but still very exciting. Uh, chapter four, five, six, it's brick wall time. You come to a dead stop. Um, now, and you have no idea what, what you're facing. You've got the beginning and the start of the, what we call the dreaded middle, um, and, um, you have no idea where you're going to go. And you think, well, the middle. Okay, I, I, I've got to put something in here. I could come up with, you know, the cliches that we've seen. How's this? Um, the captain and our hero detective have a big fight. And the, uh, the, the captain takes away his gun and badge. Oh, we've never seen that before, have we? Or there's a big, big car chase. Or the, uh, uh, the alcoholic hero's cop leaves him and he, he's, he's in a funk. Well, there's the middle. Kind of been there and done that. And then the ending, you don't know how to end this thing. You, you think, oh my gosh, well, the, the beginning was so great, but there's no, there's no real villain in the beginning. I don't know, I, I don't know how to get the, uh, the bad guy exposed at the end. 
And you say, all I've got is a deus ex machina ending. The, the guy is going to come you know, out of left field. We never met the villain before. Deus ex machina. I don't know if any Latin scholars here. That means I don't know how to end this friggin' book. And um, so. No, you, that's actually not what it means. Can I take umbrage? Oh, that? please go right, right. ahead. Right. What it really means is that the god will descend in a machine and, and finish the play. So um, it means you're calling in some supernatural power if only, because you're stuck. If, if only we had, if only we had true supernatural beings in, in chariots. And the Greeks them. actually did that. They in, did in yeah. their theater. Yeah. You know, the and, god would come down in his machine. And some of their, yeah, some of their plays. They should have called me, frankly. I have better endings for some of those <laughs> ideas. Well, anyway, so here's what you're here's what you're confronted with: uh, two choices. And I've been in this situation. I know both of them. Uh, one, you uh, do the, you're going to kind of get my take on it, do the morally courageous, the uplifting, the righteous and correct thing, and throw out every one of those 250 pages you just wrote. Don't save the first chapter. If you write a good set piece beginning for a bad book, think of the great set piece beginning you'll think uh, you'll write for a, uh, a great book. Throw it out and start over again. Or you can do the, uh, you know, cowardly, intellectually dishonest thing and throw in those cliches, put on that uh, deus ex machina ending and give it to you people. And that's a sin. You are readers. You're the gods in our pantheon. And we need to make sure you, um, you get the best we can possibly give you. Okay, now, but what if you would outline that? You wrote on a post-it note, really good kick-ass beginning, stick it in the upper uh, left-hand corner, I'm slightly dyslexic, stick it up there, and then go on with other post-it notes. And down here in the middle, okay, uh, okay, the captain takes the, the, the detective's badge and gun, and the, the, the villain who we never met uh, just, just came in on a boat from the Far East, and he's down here, and, and there's a big gunfight, and then there's, you think, you know what, there's no, there's no story here. After a week or 10 days, you wad up, uh, a handful of post-it notes, a dime's worth, throw them out, you've wasted a week or so, uh, and you're on to an, another book. Absolutely, absolutely outline. Know where you're going to go. Oh, okay, just one other reason to outline. When you outline, you can write the book in any order that you, you want. Because, um, you, you know, you may wake up and um, the, the birds are singing and the sun is shining, and you look at your outline, oh, I'm supposed to kill somebody today. I, I don't feel like it. You don't have to. You can you can save that till late. You know when I want to kill somebody in one of my books. Now we're writers, right? We're, we're, we're writers, and um, what uh, do we love most? Uh, finding excuses not to write. And what is the number one excuse not to write? Yes, YouTube, specifically videos of baby goats in pajamas. Oh, they are adorable. You have to see them. Don't look them up now, please, because I'm still talking. But after I'm through, you can. And so let's say you wake up and um, you go to, you don't want to write, and you click on YouTube. There's no YouTube. The cable's down. And you think, oh, no, I have to work today. What am I going to do? Um, so what you do is you call the cable company. I'm not going to mention uh, Time Warner by name, but, oh, just did. Uh, you, um, and they, you say, I'm a writer. I need baby goats. Please help me out. I don't want to work. And they say, okay, we'll have somebody there first thing tomorrow morning. And, okay, well, I'll get some work done and then move on. Uh, the next morning comes, 8 o'clock comes, no repair guy. 9 o'clock comes, no repair guy. 10, 11, 12, you get the picture. 4 o'clock, this guy walks in and he looks down at my setup and says, 
Well, that's a, uh, that, that's a, that's a KJ42 box. I can't work on that one. It's his cable company. I'm sorry. Those are the days when I want to kill somebody and write those violent scenes. And guess what, non-named cable company, the guy who is now the new victim works for. Uh, the outline lets you uh, do that. So uh, anyway, just some tidbits I hope that are uh, helpful, some insights into the way uh, I put together books. And now maybe you and I can have a conversation about uh, anything else we'd like to talk about. We could. Absolutely okay. so. Right. But maybe they'd rather ask questions before we... Oh, uh, yeah. Are you all inspired by all of that to leap into... No? Yes? Yes. Since you bring up outlines, and you seem to adapt that, as you're outlining, the screenplay in the back of your head, is that a distraction or inspiration? Uh, that's it's a very good question. Screenplay in the back of my head, which is a real phenomenon. Are you a writer as well? Do you know what I'm talking about? I try to be. Okay. Um, well, you are a writer. You know, may, maybe a little while until you're published the way you want to be published, but you are a writer, so be proud of that. Um, yes, I'm a very visual person. For a, a writer, I don't do well with words, actually. Uh, my uh, job is to translate what I see onto the page, and um, it's always going. It's always going, and uh, you know I don't. Uh, the um, uh, the Never Game, the first uh, Coulter Shaw book, is will be a CBS TV show uh, next spring. Uh, Justin Hartley from This Is Us. I don't know if you know him, but he's starring in it. And um, uh, one of the reasons it moved from the the book I didn't write the screenplay. A great writer named Ben Winter wrote the script or the television. Great writer. Yeah, he's How a, nice. a novelist. Yeah, um, it, it, because. Um, I write very visually. I have very realistic dialogue. For instance, my characters do not say, my darling, I am famished. Uh, shall we dine? You know, people don't talk that way. They say, uh, you know, which you see in, in books. Uh, they, they say, hey, I'm, honey, I'm hungry. Want to get a pizza? W-A-N-N-A, -N -N get a pizza. That's the way we talk. Uh, so it moves pretty easily onto the uh, script. And that's largely because I do. the script is running in the back of my head. And... Uh, I, the, some of the challenges are finding the right words to describe the scene in a very emotional, uh, impactful way, because emotion is what this, these books are all about. Thank you, and keep at it. So we could add that screenplays are dialogue-driven, yeah. and if you have a lot of interior monologue, you know, the character in the book, um, none of that translates very well to a visual media. So that's why Tony Hillerman's books were difficult to turn into television because so much of what happened went on in Joe Lee Porn's head That's right, yeah. and whatever. Yeah. Whereas Elmore Leonard was almost all dialogue, so they hardly had to do anything Nobody to change them. Nobody did dialogue like Elmore Leonard. Right. Yeah. But a screenplay basically removes that interior yeah. stuff and in, you know, yeah. in, in shows you. Have to, you have to show. You don't tell or speak. That's the uh, challenge. That's very exciting. Expand upon Calder Shaw because you've had movies in the past. You've had, yeah. you know, other. Are you excited about this one? Oh, yeah. That? Yeah, yeah, very excited. Um, and I don't remember who's in the cast. Um, it, it's uh, a CBS. It's only a pilot. We'll see what happens. You know, it may not get picked up. But if you don't have the pilot, series can't get picked up, and we'll see what happens. Uh, Calder Shaw is, as Barbara was saying, a reward seeker. <clears throat> somebody who travels around the country, he's itinerant hero, based on my love of Westerns. Now, it's modern day, the Winnebago, of course, modern day story. But um, the um, Shane, the, the Jack Schaefer novel, and then the Alan Ladd Jr. movie, you know, the gunslinger comes to town, and um, 
you know, uh, sides with the townspeople against the, the uh, robber baron kind of character. Um, then, uh, oh, the man with no name, the Clint Eastwood character. Uh, you know, we love that. It's, it's an iconic hero, the knight errant. You know, we just love that. And so I wanted him to be a, um, uh, that kind of character. And uh, he's great fun to write. He's also the antithesis of Lincoln Rhyme, who I, I love. And I will, uh, I'm working on my new Lincoln Rhyme book right now. But um, Lincoln, of course, if you're familiar with The Bone Collector and the other books, he's, um, he's uh, disabled. He's uh, uh, very static. He's kind of a Sherlock Holmes or Mycroft Holmes, Sherlock Holmes's smarter brother, who um, uh, you know figures out the, um, uh, the 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 crime without even leaving his club in London, um, and so that's what I wanted uh, wanted Lincoln Rhyme to be. But I also like the gunslinger. I want to get out there. He's, he packs a gun, uh, as you saw, two guns. Um, he um, uh, gets into fights with the bad guys. He wrestles them down. He grapples with them, and. Uh, he, he's a, a great He's everything that I am not, by the way. Uh, he repels off heights. I, I did actually, you know what? You have to do research in, in, this, in this business. And a lot of it is Google and Wikipedia, but sometimes you need hard research. And so there, there are several scenes in which Coulter Shaw and his brother and sister, younger sister, older brother, who are trained in the art of survival by their father because. Paranoid or not, and he is paranoid to some extent, he is still beset by enemies that I don't want to describe. So he needed to teach the kids survival skills. And the, um, the test was a nighttime rappelling off a 100-foot cliff, preferably in bad weather. And, you know, let's hope, let's hope they, <laughs> they all passed, because think of what if they got an F, that would be a bad thing. Mm. But um, so I thought, you know what, I, sh I should really figure out what, I'm, what this is about. So, you know, you can buy anything on... <clears throat> On Amazon, so I bought a uh, rappelling set, 200 feet of really, really nice-looking bright red rope, uh, and the the belt, and then this metal stuff that you feed the rope through. And you, well, I, I have a terrible fear of heights, so I, I I but I have a seven-foot-high back porch, so I thought I tied it. You have to tie rope very carefully. You get tension, so I tied it to the the, the post, and I'm looking down. You know, it's like the floor is right, the the ground is right there. And I, I leaned back, and I said, no, <laughs> there's no way. So I, 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 but I said, I know how to put it together. And that's really all I needed to do. By the way, if anybody is interested in repelling gear, never used, I'll give it to you for half price. So I digress. Where were we? <laughs> I could just see you now freezing on the back. I froze. Do you know there is a very fine crime writer who, um, Patrick will remember his name. It's gonna. He wrote wonderful books set in Ireland and Dublin with Superintendent Gary. Oh yeah, guy. yeah. I can't, I can't What's his name? It. Anyway, he he. The, it's not entirely clear how he died, but the general consensus is that he was testing out, going out. Patrick, do you remember this story? Where are you, Patrick? Anyway, he was testing out a plot device where he was going to climb out a window or do something oh, no. or other. And in the process, he killed himself doing actual research for it. They, they think so. I was, mean, he, was he an Irish author or an American author? Because Gene Izzy had... No, it wasn't him. No, he oh. was Irish. Um, <coughs> Superintendent McGar was the name of the character. Oh, and no. I love those books, and we did super well with them. And he would write... They were satirical. He wrote wonder, a wonderful one where Jonathan Swift was... Um, the you know oh. 
literature and so forth was part of it. They were great about Devlin. But anyway, they never could quite decide whether he had committed suicide or whether it was an accident. But the weight came down on the idea that he was researching his book and in the process of doing whatever this was, falling off. He killed himself. So I'm really glad that you didn't hit the ground yeah. at seven feet and break your back or something Research. awful. Well, actually, it, it was above a big topiary. So the, the topiary was like three feet beneath me. So there really was not a huge amount of danger. But you fell backwards, and that was I the key, fallen right? Backwards. Yeah, exactly. Yep. There you go. All right, so Coldershaw has an interesting backstory, which you have developed in three books. But in this one, you really don't. Um, did you feel like you'd said everything you needed to yep. say about his backstory, or was it sure. not going to work into Ex this plot? Exactly. The, um, uh, the backstory Barbara's referring to is his family, and I mentioned his father. Uh, he um, uh, was, the uh, was the child of two professors. I don't mention Cal, but it's University of California at Berkeley. Brilliant people, but um, the husband, Ashton, discovered something. I don't want to give anything away, but he discovered something that he should not have discovered and uh, knew he and the family were in danger. So they moved to a compound in the Sierra Nevadas. He learned survival skills. He taught the children survival skills. And um, then, and this, we learned this in the beginning of, the, this is, it's all flashback, his story. We know he's no longer with us, but we don't know how he died. And uh, the first three books, it's the Coulter Shaw origin story. And it uh, follows Shaw's, each, each novel has a, uh, a reward quest he's on. He sees a reward, he pursues it, but at the same time, a subplot is his unraveling of what happened to his father and peeling back this, uh, the onions on this terrible uh, corruption in California that may have implications uh, way beyond the state of California going right to Washington, D.C. And uh, that was resolved I'm not going to tell you how it was resolved. Obviously, Shaw survived, but maybe other people didn't. That was resolved in the third book, The Final Twist. And each book starts minutes after the prior one ended. So you can read it in all in one sitting. Now, that's 600, 700 pages a book. I would not recommend you doing that, um, although they do move quickly. Uh, but I wanted to get that done. And I can't say out of the way because it's a very interesting, valid concept that his father stumbled on, and it does have implications for us right now with regards to Washington, D.C., and I'm being, uh, you know, a bit vague here because many twists, but that was done all over with, and now Coltishaw is just on to getting the work done, making his money on uh, rewards. Well, that makes perfectly good sense. So how does he find these reward situations? You've got several <clears throat> methods so far that he's deployed. Yeah, mostly he's got a, um, uh, a couple who live next door to his house in Florida on a lake, and uh, they're uh, retired, both retired military, and they scan the, um, uh, scan the uh, Internet, uh, look at newspapers, because rewards are offered everywhere, and you're familiar with them, I'm sure. Uh, the State Department offers them. You can go to the uh, websites, the government. Uh, one uh, terrorist is uh, being sought by the State Department, $25 million reward. Now, they don't want you, just like the police and the FBI, do not want you to strap on a six-gun and go find this guy and bring him in, a la, you know, Dog the Bounty Hunter. They, um, they want information. And Coulter Shaw says, oh, he's happy to give them information. But it's kind of more fun to strap on a gun and go, go get them, which he does with some frequency. It also makes for a more interesting book, frankly. Uh, 
and uh, so that's essentially what he uh, what he does. Uh, then uh, travels around the country, and gets the reward. Right? Uh, sometimes he doesn't. If the person, as in uh, the final twist, is offering the reward for her daughter who's gone missing, and he, the reward posted in the uh, back of yes, remember a newspaper, these paper things mm -hmm. in the classified ads, is for her missing daughter, and it is uh, the princely sum of like $362.28. Well, Shaw knows immediately that's every, every single penny she could scrape together. So he uh, decides not to go after the Silicon Valley uh, fellow who's gone missing. His wife is offering a, I don't know, a $500,000 reward uh, because he deduces that the wife has killed him and uh, is offering the reward to turn suspicion away from her. He sends that email to the local police in Santa Clara County, and then he pursues the, um, uh, the missing girl in San Francisco for the, um, the $600 reward. And, uh, and even then, at the end, after she is found, he, he says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, 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 I'll bill you later. Or when you get the money, pay me back. Why? He doesn't want the money. We actually learn that he's, he's pretty well off. He sees a reward as a red flag, as a challenge, and he lives for challenges. Uh, the, the family uh, gave the children nicknames. Um, the, um, uh, the daughter, Dorian, is the clever one. Uh, the older brother, Russell, is the reclusive one, and Coulter is the restless one. And indeed, he travels uh, the, the country and, and soon to travel the world. I want to get him overseas too, uh, to look for these rewards. Maybe he takes them, maybe he doesn't, but he has to be, he's driven by what he has to uncover, that, um, uh, that problem, that question that nobody else has been able to find. It's really handy when you give your protagonist some independent income. You know, it used to be back in the early days of crime fiction that number of sleuths were actually in some kind of um, pastoral role. They were a rabbi or they were Father Brown or whatever, and that was because they were they had a guaranteed income, right? And they didn't have to work seven days a week, so Father Brown could, you know, go off and ruthlessly hunt down whoever was killing people in the exactly, village. Yeah. Um, I loved Rabbi Small. I've often missed Rabbi Small. He was, um, I think it was a synagogue in New England somewhere. Mm -hmm. But Rabbi oh. Small, who was trained, I mean, rabbis are trained in, you know, deduction and so forth. That was oh, a sure. wonderful series. Harry yeah. Kimmelman right, wrote yeah, that yeah. series. But it solved the problem of how your sleuth can actually take time away from life, you know, in order to do all this. Mm -hmm. So you do need David Rosenfeld. Any of you read his wonderful books about Andy Carpenter? Mm -hmm. Andy, yeah. in the first book... Andy is a lawyer. He's now professionally retired, which is one of my favorite phrases. Um, but <laughs> Andy Carpenter's father, it turned out, was on the take and uh, left Andy. He's he's pays his final dues in the first book. Left Andy so much money that Andy can pick and choose whatever he wants to do. 
and he is, the whole series is driven by things that happen to dogs. Back to our dog theme. Hi, Kyrie. Um, but, you know, but in other words, he's got the money, you know. Um, and I do think that that's a problem that some, particularly the cozy genre, really fails at. Mm -hmm. Because they will have some woman who opens a chocolate shop on a small tourist town on the lake, on the shore of Lake Michigan, population 600. And she's able to constantly leave her business and go sleuthing. You know, so you have two problems. How many people can die in this town? But additionally, how is it that she can maintain her chocolate shop if yeah. she's actually must, never must there? Be, must be damn good chocolate. And, and it comes up it comes up for bookstores all the time, and I keep trying to figure out, how's that going to work, you know? Well, I could be you, here, or I could be out sleuthing in Scottsdale, probably arrested, but I can't really <laughs> do both. And, and, you know, so I think that giving, you know, solving the money sure. question for well, a not-professional, i.e. a cop, or a lawyer or whatever, is something you have to think and, and about. A, you know, a, a broader issue that you touch on, which is very, uh, very good, Barbara, uh, my goal is to create the most emotionally engaging experience you can have. And I want you to finish a, a deeper book and say, well, oh my, that was interesting. I failed if you do that. I want you to say, oh my God, I survived this book. I want you to pick it up, turn pages. Doesn't have to be one sitting, but I really like one sitting. I'm not going to test you on it. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I want to move forward, move forward, move forward. And part of that I have learned <clears throat> is uh, to eliminate uh, digression, eliminate questions that distract the reader. And one of those would be, for instance, where does the money come from? What do they do? How is he going to balance this, uh, this assignment? with, uh, you know, making money. Another issue would be, uh, say, children or family relationships. Uh, those are, are very valid. They can provide a source of uh, a very emotionally engaging plot as well. I try to put in, uh, you know, what I call the soap opera plot in my books as well as uh, the, the crime and then some geopolitical stuff uh, as well. So I have three plots going on at, at once. But those are all integrated into the plot. And so if there's a, a digression there, a stumbling block, that's part of my design to make you think, oh, no, what's going to happen next? But, um, you know, the trick is really to make you move seamlessly from the first page to the last. And if the question comes up, huh, that's why did he do that? Oh, yeah, he needs money. When I was asked by the Ian Fleming estate to write uh, the James Bond book about... Which you might say was fabulous. Oh, you thank did you. did such a great job with that book. Thank you. Um, other authors have done um, the uh, set the the book in the, in the 1960s. Uh, other continuation authors. Fleming died in the 1960s, and the the state wanted to keep the uh, the books going, of course, because very popular character. And uh, I didn't want to I didn't want to do that. I wanted to set the book in the present day. And Bond was in the book was written in 2010. It was set in 2010. He was uh, oddly just like in. The first series in the 1950s, uh, Bond was a, um, a veteran of the war in Afghanistan because Afghanistan was a battleground in the Second World War. And uh, Fleming set him there. He was naval intelligence, but he was set in Afghanistan. So I could make that parallel. And why did I do that? Because I didn't want readers thinking he's pulling off the road in his Bentley, not in Aston Martin, Bentley, and digging coins out of his pocket to make a, a phone call? Oh, I get it. It's set in 1960. Well, it's accurate, yes, but it's just a digression. I wanted the story to move, uh, you know, without any speed bumps. 
And, uh, you know, it's a challenge when I finish the book and go back and rewrite it many, many times. It's things like that that I, I will probably take out or smooth over. Things like, oh, well, how did he, uh, uh, how did he pay his rent this, this month? Why don't why do I have to worry about that? Uh, you know, I don't have my characters date casually. You know, there's no, no plot point. And, I mean, they can date serial killers. That's good. I like that part. But, uh, but they can't, uh, you know, go out and have kind of an embarrassing time on a date. There could be some comic relief, but I don't want that. Move forward. Now I've lost my train of thought. I was going to digress. I, I'm responsible for that, Barbara. Yeah, don't worry. I'll come back. Um, I write more concisely than I talk. Don't worry. Right. I was going to say, when he did the James Bond book, we did that at Scottsdale Community mm -hmm. College, yeah. and there was a professor there who did a whole James Bond movie retrospective yeah, that, that was, we that showed as part of that. It was absolutely fabulous. That was well done. And yeah. the other day, Last week, when was it, Wednesday or Thursday, I did a Zoom interview with a woman named Catherine Harkup, and it's called Super Spy Science, and she goes through the entire James Bond. It's, this is the 60th anniversary of Dr. No this year. Wow. And she goes through the entire James Bond in all 25 movies, and she talks about all of the, you know, the science, the gadgets, the whole bit. It's a wonderful Bond retrospective. But one of the things we talked about was how integral to Bond was Q. Yeah. And, you know, all that gadgetry that yeah. you just couldn't resist. And then questions like, how long could you live if you were covered in gold paint? Yeah. Or, you know, where did the car come from and other stuff? Oh, yeah. yeah. And it was, you know, the, the history of gadgets for guys like that. It's really wonderful. So well, uh, my, my question is, do you, do you try to keep that really simple? So, you know, your guy, Colder Shaw, does not have to have, yeah. like, the latest laser technology you, you can, or something. <clears throat> yeah, you can overly gadget. I mean, the original Bond books, um, if you haven't read them, you, you should. Uh, they're, they're very short. They move very quickly. Uh, they are not uh, really, uh, there are no twists. Occasionally, Fleming would put a twist in. But they're, they're very lean. And uh, Bond was quite an interesting person. He was a cook. He wanted to get married. He just couldn't find the right, uh, uh, the right woman. He was not, you know, the double O did not mean he's attacked by somebody and he could then kill them. Double O meant he was an assassin. He shot, he was a sniper. And, and he walked up behind people and shot them in the back of the head. And he was very, he'd, he'd do an assignment, then have to take three months off because he was so traumatized by that. That's a real character. This is not the Daniel Craig, uh, Craig character that we see, who's also blonde, and I can't get that out of my head. Okay, I got that out of my system. Got that out of my system. But um, but he was not. It was not gadget oriented. I mean, he had a, like a, a changing a changing number plate on his car, and I think he'd you know the oil that squirted it's out. It's the movies. It was it's the, the twenty five movies. Yeah. And the other interesting thing before we get off the Bond digression is that the entire twenty five James Bond movies have been made by the same company and the same producer. That's almost unheard of. Yeah. Cubby Broccoli had the Gavon franchise and he had pursued it all the way through the final Daniel Craig and you just don't run into that. So yeah. there's a continuity to the movies regardless oh, yeah. of how you yeah. feel about them oh, that yeah. is extraordinary. <clears throat> I, I, I like to point out some problems with the movies. Nobody wants to see a movie with me. Um, for instance, okay, right. so no. for instance, for instance um, in the, um, one of the Bond films, uh, he's on a train. And, you know, it's this very improbable, good, good guy versus bad guy. And he's got his Walter, it's like a PPK, it's a, it's a German, probably 9mm, 380. 
uh, and uh, he's shooting the bad guy and the bad guy shoots the bad guy. He shoots and then the bullets are gone. And, you know, technically the slide should lock back. We all watch TV shows, so you know the slide, but the slide didn't lock back. It just ran out of bullets. He looks at the gun as if uh, he's irritated and it didn't tell him he was going to run out of bullets and he throws it away. Those things cost $700. He had pockets. Did he not know that you could put... Okay, and then another thing. Okay, The Departed. Why did Martin Sheen go up to the top of the building and then get thrown off? And then, okay, one more. Okay, uh, Pulp Fiction. Um, uh, who's, who's the... Uh, John Travolta is the ace hitman of all time. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's got the, his machine gun and uh, Bruce Willis has thrown the fight and uh, Vin Ranks, or whoever it is, is, is says, okay, go kill him. And so uh, Travolta's in uh, Bruce Willis's apartment waiting for him to come back because for some reason he, his girlfriend lost the watch and he had a temper tantrum. I digress. So, so, so Bruce Willis walks in and what does he see? Two things. One, the machine gun on the kitchen counter and two, the bathroom door is closed because John Travolta is in there uh, doing his business. Now, so what does Bruce Willis do? He picks up the machine gun and uh, uh, shoots John Travolta. If I were an ace hitman, I would have taken the machine gun with me. It's not that it's not that small a bathroom. You can get yourself and a machine gun into the bathroom at the same time. Or, okay, do that. Now I would respect Travolta more. He's got the machine gun in there. Bruce Willis comes back. He hears him in there, maybe flushing. What does Bruce Willis do? He reaches up to the top of a cabinet and takes down the gun he had hidden there. Uh, now it's credible. Now I will buy that. Um, so anyway, never see a movie with me. That's all I can say. <laughs> all right. So I have one final question, which you've touched upon, Shane. So the most quintessential Shane character in crime fiction today is actually Jack Reacher. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. You know, Reacher, he rides into town on the bus. Right. He, you know, he cleans up. He sees something going wrong. He cleans up the town. He might romance the girl, just like Alan Ladd does with Gene Arthur, but mm -hmm. not really. And then, <laughs> you know, when really. it's all over, he takes the bus and he rides away. But the, the advantage of that structure is that it, you get to move your location mm -hmm. every yeah. single book, and you're not dragging anything with you. So Coldershaw does have the luxury of moving all the time because you're mm -hmm. setting him exactly. up to do these rewards. Yeah. So he is not anchored to any particular place He's, or town or even exactly. time. He is the restless man. And... Um, uh, he, uh, you know, will maybe be in Scottsdale at some point. Uh, it requires, because uh, I spent much time here, I would still have to research it. You have to be very buttoned up about um, what you're uh, writing. Another very fast story. I set a book called A Maiden's Grave in the Midwest. <clears throat> uh, Dead Silence was the movie starring James Garner. It was, it was quite good, an HBO film many years ago. And um, I'd gone to school at the University of Missouri and spend a lot of time in Kansas. And the uh, Arkansas River, or a river just across the border in Kansas, was kind of a, a, a big uh, a, a torrential kind of thing, and you could get inner tubes and float down. It was kind of a fun thing to do that I did with my girlfriend and roommate and his girlfriend. And so when I set the, um, the book in that fictional town, I thought, oh, a good scene. Uh, two of the hostages, school, school children are hostages, uh, two of them get away and find an inner tube or something that floats and they go down that uh, torrential river 
and a very you know dangerous set piece, but they survive. The police uh, get them safe, and they give uh, you know uh, important information about inside of the hostage uh, taker's abode, and so it has a good plot uh, plot twist to it. Then I start getting letters, dear Mr. Dealer, I loved your recent book, A Maiden's Grave, very exciting, and I look at the uh, hearing impaired community in, in quite a uh, you know a, a complex sympathetic way. They, say, they love that. However, um, when was the last time you were across the border in Kansas? And I don't have to answer it because it's an email, but then they explain down at the bottom. That river was dammed about, um, I don't know, 25 years ago, <laughs> and big reservoir, and one of the readers, uh, readers said, the most dangerous thing about what's left is that you could trip over a cow pie and um, break, a, break a leg. So I, um, did I change it? Nah, I didn't change it, but uh, you know, I should. And I wrote letters of apology because I, I got it wrong. Anyway, if you're gonna set a story somewhere, go there. Uh, you can deduct it. I'm not your accountant, but if you do, uh, you do go someplace, you can deduct the expenses as part of, a, uh, part of your business. And uh, you know, and I, I've set, uh, Stories in um, Indianapolis, it doesn't, with all respect to Indianapolis, uh, it, it, or like Muncie, I said a story in Muncie. Small, they don't have to be glamorous. I said some in Silicon Valley, that's uh, glamorous. You don't have to do that. Uh, but you have, to, you have to make it real. You have to make the, uh, the setting another character in the book. Don't digress, but don't, don't, you know, get, don't stray. But make the character real and uh, get you, do your homework. I've known Jeffrey for 30 years, and I can tell you he is always in motion. Jeffrey is yeah. always going somewhere. Sometimes it's international. We've talked about Japan. You know, we've done England, whatever it all is. But he's always traveling, and I think that lends a lot of authenticity to the books. Um, Patrick, do you have a question or two from the audience? I see you popped out, so you must. Let's see here. Um, one question is, you've written four culture shots. So Patrick says the question is that Jeffrey has written four Coulter Shaw short stories. Would you recommend reading them before you read one of the novels? No, you don't need to read the short stories. Um, they are kind of a bonus, uh, kind of a giveaway. I don't know that my publisher gives them away, but they are not very expensive. And uh, they're kind of, um, you know, teasers in a way. But the, each one is a, a, a discrete short story. Uh, beginning, middle, a big twist at the end. All of my <coughs> short fiction has huge twists. And um, so, no, you don't need to read them. Also, I do the same for the Lincoln Rhyme books uh, as well. Uh, just a little extra bonus because I love my readers. I want to give them something fun. I'm going to give a plug here, Try Not to Faint, for Amazon. Um, because Jeffrey is actually writing Amazon Shorts which are terrific short stories. Thank you. And they're published only, I think, for Kindle. Exactly. Um, there's not a print version, although eventually, if there are enough of them, they may there may become a print version. And he's not alone. There are a number of authors who are doing this. Yep. Um, and it, contractually, he can't write books for Amazon, but he can write short stories. Yeah, I have one coming out very soon called The Broken Doll. You'll start to see ads for that on social media. Uh, maybe this thing called Twitter. Oh, wait a minute. What time is it? Yeah, maybe you'll see that. Uh, but it's it's very fun. It's four short stories that are interlocked. Um, speaking of Tarantino, they kind of uh, you know jump back and forth in time. 
uh, very exciting. But uh, if you like short fiction, and I love it, love to read it, love to write it. You are one of the most prolific authors of short fiction that I know. It's extraordinary. And Jeffrey is actually very charitable, and he has edited and written short fiction as fundraisers for things yeah. like the International Thriller Writers Association yeah. and so forth. And he has won, he's nominated almost every year for a short story, and he's won various awards for his short stories. And it's unusual that a person who can write thrillers, which are big books, it's also good at writing short stories because they, you know, they're they're mm. quite different in it, the way it they're it put serves together. A, serves a different function. A novel is emotional, an emotional experience where you're drawn in, uh, you fall in love with the characters, or you despise the characters, uh, and you go for that journey. Um, a um, a short story is a sniper's bullet. It exists yeah. for one thing only: the twist at the end. You can find the characters despicable; uh, it doesn't matter as long as you're surprised and say, "I never saw that coming." Um, that's what short fiction is all about. You don't want to be in Jeffrey's head because clearly he's always <laughs> thinking up. He's a born criminal that's actually just writing books. Right, Thatcher, another question? No, but this is fun. Well, there is another question. This lady, this poor lady, is trying to send uh, hearts. Oh, 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 oh thanks. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, good. So it's it's just a mistake, the angry tell, face? Tell her, tell her if she would, if she sent... Social security number and address. I just send it to me, and I'll I'll make sure she gets a, a, a program that will help her send hearts. <laughs> thank you. I, you were yeah. I want to thank you very much because I absolutely could not think of Bartholomew Gill and. Fabulous writer. Patrick and I loved his books. They were published by Penguin. Is it Superintendent McGill or McGar? I can't remember. McGar, wasn't it? Yeah. And he really did have this very bizarre death, which has not, I think, ever been mm. entirely settled as to what happened to him. Well, it was a window in his house. He fell out of a window in his house. But, I mean, I'm serious. They are the most wonderful books. I don't think they're currently in print, but you can probably find used copies or digital copies. And they're they're just amazing books. Yeah, but they were Irish. Death of mm -hmm. a Joyce Scholar, and he did a wonderful takeoff on Swift, and I can't remember what else. But anyway, thank you very much for helping me out thank there, you. or everybody who sent that in. Question about does um, okay, so we know that you outline extensively. Mm -hmm. um, what methods do you use to develop your dialogue? How um, do you develop your dialogue? Is the question. Um, you know, most of this is sweat labor. You just come up with an idea, right? You roll up your sleeves and you sit at the computer and you picture the scene and you get it done. Um, I'm very lucky because I have, I was born with several things. One, I love writing. I mean, I do it every day. Today I was at the, the hotel, probably wrote for, did a little media, but probably wrote for nine hours, and it was just ecstatic. I love it. Um, so I was born with that. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I was born uh, with an ear for dialogue. I, I don't know where that comes from. It's never a problem for me. I, um, when I um, give my characters a voice, it just exists. And that's available to any any author who spends his or her time listening. And uh, uh, I was on a, I, I wrote a book set in New York City, and there were, uh, it was largely around uh, the, the heroine, it was a Lincoln Ryan book, but the heroine was a 16-year-old um, African-American uh, black girl from, from Harlem. So I spent a lot of time in Harlem <clears throat> and a lot of time downtown in the club scene. 
uh, for a different different subplot in in the book. And so I'm, I'm on the A train going from Harlem down to uh, um, down to uh, Greenwich Village, and I hear some some kids next to me. Think, oh man, this dialogue is incredible, and I, I'm writing it down, and I, I'm writing, okay. and then I write the part that says, "What is that guy doing?" <laughs> and I, I look over and say, "Hi," and uh, I told them who I was, what I was doing. And uh, they were incredibly helpful. I, they were, I think they were in a gang. Uh, you know, I think they were, uh, they were hooked up. But, uh, you know, I had nothing, no, I had no problem, you know. But they gave me, they, they gave me gang talk. And I, it was just great. But I listened. And uh, it's better to ask permission, but it's just a thought. Jeffrey's not mentioned that he's actually has been a reporter and he's also an attorney. And so, you know, that we those, share that, don't we? Well, those skills. Um, yes, I'm very good at cross-examination. Yeah, right. Those skills um, are very helpful for a novelist, you know, because they help you with structure and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. Right. And then also, either during the height of COVID or um, instead of looking at the goat videos that you mentioned, was there something else that maybe you um, found to do to keep mm. you busy? Either, um, you know, a cookbook that you really liked or maybe you did, um, you know, sports concerts. Sure, yeah. Sure. Well, thank you for those questions. As far as the audiobooks know, uh, that is a, uh, a skill that is beyond me. I've tried little bits and I, I just am not not very good at it <clears throat> uh, you know they, they can work wonders in the studio they can blend things together but it's uh it, it, it's not me I'm, I'm good for like several pages and uh and having been doing media for the last week you can hear i'm a little bit a little bit hoarse so i don't have my true you know gil good voice for olivier voice on me uh during you know i quit uh, I, I was not a lawyer at the time i had gone moved from practicing law to uh being a legal editor to get more time to write back in the 1980s. And finally, I decided to quit that job and write full time. And I've been doing that for, we can do the math, what is that, 40 years or whatever it is. Um, and um, my life has largely been what it was like in COVID, sitting in a room, writing, coming up with ideas. It was a very productive time for me. Uh, I did get uh, COVID, um, I was on book tour in Germany and got it. I didn't really have any bad symptoms, but when you get COVID in Germany, just some advice. Now, it's different now because they eliminated the restrictions, but I got a letter. That I, okay, I tested positive, and you're required to go to a government testing center. You know, I had the little thing that you swab and so forth. Oh, great, positive. Didn't feel bad, but there it was. Go to the center. That was the PCR, PRC test, whatever it was. Uh, yes, positive. Oh, great. Okay. The, the, so the book tour was on hold. The next morning, I got a letter, hand-delivered from the German police, national police. And uh, I, I think, oh, boy, what's this? I opened it up. Well, it's in German. You know, okay. <laughs> they knew I had an American passport. So I took a picture of it, sent it to my publicist uh, in Munich. And she said, oh, yeah, you cannot legally, uh, it's a crime to leave your hotel for 10 days. And I thought, uh, the first thing I thought was, What's the internet like here? 
and it was good. And in fact, I could do like personal stuff because I could use my phone as a hotspot. Do you know how to do that? And uh, so I had cellular, uh, rapid, I could watch Veep again, I could listen to my podcast, and I wrote 12 hours a day, I wrote. So in answer to your question, that's kind of what I do. And uh, you know, I get to the, I'm not gonna retire. Um, I, my goal is to hit like 50 books. I'm, I'm, this is novels, I mean, I've got about 90 short stories, 45 novels, some aren't available anymore, but I want to hit 50, and then I'm going to slow down a little bit, but I'll still write, you know, I'll still do it. Well, I giggle. (laughs) You heard the snort. He's not going to slow down. Neither one of us is ever going to retire. We're just going to go out together at some point. Yep, that's our plan. That's right. Right. Patrick, did you have another question? Um, You were still there, so I assume you do. Yeah, I have this idea about uh, Da Vinci, a code, and a scientist that figures it out with a a very attractive other scientist who's a French uh, person from the Sorbonne or wherever. Uh, uh, No, you know, I really haven't. I I, I will tell you, I, I will say one thing. Yes, there is a book that I may still do. Uh, the title was kind of preempted. I've had the title for a long time. <clears throat> it's fiction. It has some crime elements to it. But the title is Breaking Bread. Now, and again, this goes back 30 years. And the, uh, the book is this. And if somebody wants to do it, please go right ahead. Uh, I may do it someday. It starts in Revolutionary War times with a family or two families in New England. Um, and uh, they all, they're involved in maybe the Revolutionary War, maybe the founding of the government, but some conflict, haven't worked that out yet. And, but kind of like at the end of Blue Bloods, they all sit down to a meal at some point. And I would do the recipes. I would come up with authentic recipes from that era. They would be in the back of the book. And uh, that would be the first section. Second section is, uh, I, again, haven't figured this out, but let's say uh, the Civil War or anti, uh, antebellum of the South, for instance, uh, or New England again, um, and descendants of this family um, are doing other things, some conflicts, and they they meet again, maybe coincidentally, maybe in a different context. Well, we keep going. There'd be probably like five sections. We jump through uh, history, might even take some of these individuals, the descendants of some of these original individuals, uh, to fight in Europe, uh, maybe in, in Vietnam, and one of the themes running through this is Romeo and Juliet. Two families, they're not fighting, but one family does not want the daughter to get together with the son. And that's a sad, uh, a sad truth of the continuing stories, but they, the descendants kind of you know, form a little connection. Well, the final one is, of course, uh, a different world, New York City, the present day, where um, you know, often people do not get together with their families. They get a turkey sandwich. Uh, for Thanksgiving, and uh, what happens? But a young man and a woman about the same age, professionals in New York, uh, are um, by themselves. They can't see their family, um, and they're buying uh, something. And maybe one of them buys the last turkey dinner at the deli, and he sees that she was looking at it, and she sees that he was looking at it, and they strike up a conversation, and they they kind of hit it off, and uh, 
well, let's go back to my, my place if you're comfortable. And they say, oh, yeah, they're fine. They're, they, these are good people. And they have, they have their Thanksgiving dinner together. They start talking about their family history. Well, guess what? They are descendants of the two people who were not allowed to get together in 1776. So, but then, then Vince Gilligan stole my title, Breaking Bad. But, but Breaking Bad is different. Yeah. Yes. One character you of yours you haven't mentioned, who I absolutely enjoy, is Catherine Vance. Sure. How did you come up with her? Interesting, and I like the story. Thank you. Yeah, Catherine. Way different than Lincoln. She is different, very different. Catherine Dance is a, um, um, a policewoman. She's with the investigator with the uh, California Bureau of Investigation, which uh, no longer exists. It's been subsumed into other things, but that doesn't matter because I make stuff up. You know, I can have her. Do. But wasn't that sort of the same thing they did the mentalist off of uh, organization? Yeah, and yeah. apparently the creator of the mentalist happens to be a fan of Catherine Dance, too. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, but that's okay. You know, we take things. That's all right. Uh, no big deal. But um, the, um, uh, the character is a kinesics expert. She's a body language expert. And she, um, you know, analyzes what people say and uh, do, how they look, what they say and don't say, and then uh, gets to the truth. And she's an interrogator, basically. Um, I wrote four books in that series. And, you know, the fact is, uh, I'm a business person. I do not write with other authors. Nothing wrong with it. You know, J Jim Patterson has done a great job bringing other authors into the fold, writing wonderful books. Other people do that, too. Uh, I just can't do it. I, I just choose not to. So I, I can only do X number of books. And the Catherine Dance books didn't sell well. They just didn't no, sell. No. Yeah, it's, it's a product that uh, was uh, very popular among a small market, but I need a somewhat bigger market. I have ideas for books, and oddly enough, just got a call from... Uh, I think it, a big studio, Fox or Disney or somebody like that, saying if the dance rights are available, uh, Sleeping Doll, the first one, and yeah, so. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, something may come of come of that. If so, you know, maybe I'll. And you get to write more because it's astonishing what a TV series does. Thank you. Yeah. 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 It's a very good ah, series. Ah, there we go. Roadside Crosses fan, right back there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Anything else, Oh, sure. Gar oh, I'm so glad you remembered the title. I've been sitting here trying to think of it. It's Garden one of my favorite Jeffrey oh, Deaver books. I love it. Garden of Beasts was my only historical thriller. I've written historical short stories, but my only historical novel, set in Berlin in 1936. And it uh, follows a, um, a man who is a hitman, a button man, a hitman for the mob who is caught. And he is given the choice, go to Sing Sing and the death penalty. Uh, then it was the electric chair. Or... Um, uh, pretend you're with the 1936 Olympics, go to Berlin as a reporter and kill um, a fictional aide to Adolf Hitler who, who is helping to rearm Germany. And this is a guy like Donitz or Raider, kind of an amalgam of a character. And um, so uh, I set them on a collision course. Um, and I, uh, I, I a book took me two years to write. It is authentically... It is authentically a peek into what the world was like then. Um, I, I was very honored. A man who had escaped just after Kristallnacht, he was Jewish. Kristallnacht was the really the start of the uh, pogrom and the uh, terrible, uh, really the beginning of the Holocaust. And he said he had never read even nonfiction, a more accurate book about what it was like to be in Berlin at that era. He was quite young. 
uh, of course, what he said, it, it rang true. I was very moved by that. And what I like about the book is that if you've read Day of the Jackal, which is a Frederick Forsyth, a superb book uh, about an assassin trying to kill uh, Charles de Gaulle, we know Charles de Gaulle was not assassinated. Uh, the guy was not successful. But in my book, my character, Hitler's aide, is fictional. So uh, my hero, Paul, could kill him. As we, the story goes along, we look at this, uh, this man who is a Nazi, a, a senior officer. He hates Hitler. He wants the Republic back. He'll do anything he can. He's a good a grandfather. Uh, he's good to his, his underlings. He does not play the betrayal game. He has Jewish friends. Um, and now Paul is the bad guy trying to do the good thing. And little by little, they are going to, going to collide. And what is going to happen? I can't tell you. You have to buy the book. Uh, it's a truly wonderful book. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love, it's my favorite book. If anything I've written, it's my And favorite. I want to give a plug for a book that's just coming out this month by an author named William Christie, and it's called The Double Agent. And it's really, it's about a, a young Russian boy who manages, uh, who is trained to, um, to be a spy, to be an agent, and inserted into Germany about this time. Mm -hmm. And, um, <coughs> and then he's, I can't remember how it all works out, but then he winds up in England, and they want to send him back to Germany to be a spy again, but instead they end up sending him to Italy. And all, I mean, it's just an astonishing book. The guy's name is Alexei, and he is an antagonist. And I will tell you that all great thrillers have a great villain. Mm. There, You have to have a really good villain. Otherwise, the whole antagonism and everything the hero is doing doesn't, doesn't it's a, really it's a count. cardboard villain you knock over, yeah, like, a, you know, like the bad guys in Steven Seagal movies. You know, you just you yeah. don't care. No, you really you, the stakes. <laughs> you know, a thriller is basically a contest. You know, between a good guy and some evil force. And if the evil force falls flat, then there's not a lot of tension. Fast in story the book. about uh, Gardner Beast. Um, the um, oh, who wrote um, the um, um, Devil in the White City. Eric Larson. Eric Larson. Okay, so <clears throat> I get a call from my publisher, Simon & Schuster, saying, <clears throat> excuse me, Jeff, what kind of promotion are you, are you doing for Garden of Beasts? The sales are going through the roof. And I say, nothing. I mean, it was like five years ago. And uh, they say, well, this is amazing. So I, I go online, and uh, yeah, my sales are through the roof. Why? Because Eric Larson had just released In the Garden of Beasts, one of his wonderful books, Eric Larson is a fantastic writer. And so people, you know, heard him on NPR or whatever, and they, they go to Amazon. Okay, Garden Beast, okay, I can buy it hardcover for $29.95, or I can get the paperback for $7.95. So they bought the paperback. I'm sorry, it's not my job to tell them that they probably should have gone to Amazon and, or Googled the title of the book, which we always do. And, you know, you you know, there was a bestseller. I can't remember exactly what I was. Remember the girl on the train that became a big bestseller? Oh, yeah. Well, there was a book, a title almost like it, like the woman on the train or the, whatever. And it turned into a bestseller because oh, so. people kept, you know, <laughs> clicking on the yeah. See, if you don't come to a bookstore, you can make that mistake. You come here, we would have sold you the girl on the train, right? Yeah. But if you're clicking away, you could easily go wrong. So unless Patrick has one more question, do you? No, no, no. I was going to call this off unless... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry.
And I just wonder what you thought about the casting in that to really give that calm. Sure, sure. If you're, and this is a question that is, is very valid. I mean, and we don't need to be uh, worried about it or ashamed or anything or concerned. Uh, in the book, I envisioned um, uh, Tom, who's a, a gay man, Lincoln's aide, um, and everybody's white. I mean, I have black characters in the book, but uh, Lincoln is white, Amelia's uh, white, and uh, uh, Tom is, is white. Uh, and uh, Denzel Washington is black. That's not a surprise to anybody. Queen Latifah is black. Um, that's just the casting. He saw, he saw the, um, read the book, saw the, I think saw the script, said, I want to do it. And uh, then Angelina Jolie played uh, Amelia Sachs. And I thought it, these are, you know, these are actors in addition to being uh, stars. And uh, there's really no, you know, no racial component to it. It's just that, uh, in fact, it's kind of a non-denominational situation that I, I, I'm very pleased about. Oh, I want to thank everybody for coming this evening. Yes, I want indeed. to thank, thank our virtual all. audience and say good night. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.